Shalom Mishpocha. I'm Rabbi Eric Carlson, and welcome to our latest Kadima recording. I want to share today about Shalom in the midst of the storm. A storm is coming, and few are prepared. What's going to happen? Will it be an economic collapse, maybe war, riots, anarchy, civil war, terrorism, maybe a hurricane, maybe an earthquake, volcano eruptions, solar flares, maybe all the above, maybe nothing. Maybe delayed judgment, maybe revival. The hardest part about this is that it's not up to us. God knows what he's going to do. We do not. He is sovereign, and he will perform his will despite what we think or feel. America's unrighteousness goes before us. Let's look back historically, because this is a profound time. We are in a Shemitah year. I'm going to cover this scripturally. I know many people don't know what that means, uh, but it's got significance on us as a nation. And we see patterns unveiled as we look back historically at the last five Shemitah cycles. And these are seven-year cycles. And it gives us an indicator of the extent and severity of what's possible, but it's no guarantee. I'm not making any predictions here. I'm just looking at this historically. In 1987, a Shemitah year. We had Black Monday, as is referenced today, took place on October 19th, a Monday in 1987. On this day, stock markets around the world crashed, though the event didn't happen all at once. Black Monday saw the biggest one-day percentage drop in U.S. stock market history. The Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped by slightly more than 22%. The S&P 500 index suffered a similar decline of 20.4%. To give some perspective on the severity of Black Monday, the worst one-day drop in the Dow Jones during the stock market crash of 1929 was just 12%. And in other words, barely more than half of that decline occurred on Black Monday in 1987. Let's move forward seven years. 1994. The early summer of 1994, the NASDAQ peaked and went into a decline of 14% over 14 weeks, causing the 1994 bond market crisis, or the Great Bond Massacre, as it was known as. This was a sudden drop in bond market prices across the developed world, began in Japan, ended the United States, and spread throughout the rest of the world. You ready? Let's go seven years forward from there. 2001. We had the 9-11 terrorist attacks against the World Trade Centers and the Pentagon. Following that terrorist attack on September 11, 2001, it marked a sharp plunge in the stock market, causing a $1.4 trillion loss in market value. The first week of trading after the attack saw the S&P 500 fall more than 14%. Let's go ahead seven years. 2008, we saw the housing bubble burst, the housing crisis. September 29, 2008, when the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 777.68 points. This was the largest single-day loss in Dow Jones history up to this point. Congress passed a $700 billion bailout to save banks, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, GMC, and Chrysler from bankruptcy, and it started the Great Recession. Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. Lehman was the fourth largest investment bank in the United States with 25,000 employees worldwide. It had $639 billion in assets and $613 billion in liabilities. Yeah, let's go ahead seven years. 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court redefined the covenant of marriage for the first time in human history ruling that same-sex couples have the right to marry in all 50 states. The deadliest attack in France since World War II occurred 
on the evening of Friday, November 13th in Paris, the country's capital. A series of coordinated terrorist attacks rocked the city of lights when suicide bombings and mass shootings injured 368 and killed 130 people. Several Syracuse University students were studying abroad in London were visiting Paris that weekend. ISIS terrorists struck on three continents, including the California shooting during that year. The 2015 flash crash refers to the rapid stock market decline on Monday, August 24, 2015. The S&P 500 stock index fell as much as 103 points in minutes below the Friday, August 21st close. It's also referred to as the August 24 flash crash or the 2015 stock market crash. This year, 2022, Schmitta year. What's going to happen? I don't know. Yet on the other hand, we know that from God's word that the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming one way or the other. So let's read in Leviticus 25, verses 2 through 7. And this is going to be the start of the understanding of what Shemitah is. Tell the people of Israel, when you enter the land I'm giving you, the land itself is to observe a Shabbat rest for Adonai. Six years you will sow your field. Six years you will prune your grapevines and gather their produce. But in the seventh year, verse 4, is to be a Shabbat of complete rest for the land, a Shabbat for Adonai. You will neither sow your field nor prune your grapevines. You are not to harvest what grows by itself from the seeds left by your previous harvest, and you're not to gather the grapes of your unintended vine. It is to be a year of complete rest for the land. But what the land produces during the year of Shabbat will be food for all of you, you, your servants, your maid, your employee, anyone living near you, your livestock and the wild animals on your land. Everything the land produces may be used for food. Now, the biblical calendar begins, and we're at the end of March here when we're recording this. It begins sunset April 1st. That's a Friday, 2022. That's the first of Nisan. That's the biblical calendar new year. In Exodus 12, verses 1 and 2, God says, start your calendars the month you celebrate Passover. Passover begins Nisan 14th at sunset, so we've back up 14 days. That's Friday, April 1st. That marks the cycle of these Shemitah cycles that are every seven years. A year of nullification of all credit and debt while the fields are left fallow, and whatever it produces will be consumed and eaten of. Deuteronomy 15 contains the other half of this, verses 1 through 4. At the end of every seven years, you're to have a Shemitah. Here is how the Shemitah is to be done. Every creditor is to give up what he has loaned to his fellow member of the community. He's not to force his neighbor or relative to repay it, because Adonai's time of remission has been proclaimed. You may demand that a foreigner repay his debt, but you're to release your claim on whatever your brother owes you. In spite of this, there'll be no one needy among you, because Adonai will certainly bless you in the land which Adonai your God has given you as an inheritance to possess. So if we followed the Shemitah cycles, it's a great source of blessings and provisions, and there would be no needy among us. God's own word is that if we are not greedy and follow this principle, we wouldn't have the poor among us. If it's not followed, Shemitah becomes a point of judgment from God for disobedience upon our provision and wealth. Paul talks about this time period, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 4. He's telling the people here in Thessalonica, and we've been sharing this at our midweek tour studies, Paul was in Thessalonica for three Shabbats. So this is about three weeks, maybe a little three and a half weeks. And a significant portion of his time spent with them was teaching them about the end, about the return of Yeshua and the establishment of his kingdom upon this earth. He said in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 5, But you have no need to have anything written to you, brothers, about the times and dates when this will happen, because you yourselves well know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
in the night. When people are saying everything is so peaceful and secure, then destruction will suddenly come upon them the way labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there is no way they will escape. But you brothers are not in the dark. Skotos in the Greek, which means darkness, blind, is a metaphor for ignorance, respecting divine things uh, and human duties with the accompanying ungodliness and immorality together with their consequent misery in hell. So let me, let me say that again. It's ignorance respecting divine things and human duties with the accompanying ungodliness and immorality together with their consequent misery in hell. So it, it, this literally is talking about an eternity in hell. He says, you're, you're not in this darkness. You know about the divine, righteous, pure things of God. He says, so this day should not take you by surprise like a thief. You're not ignorant of divine things. Yeshua went on at great length to make a crystal clear to us, his followers, his Talmudim, that though the promised kingdom of heaven will come and he will return here to rule, it won't occur without a great deal of difficulty, affliction, and suffering by the body of Messiah, including Israel. And we've, we've talked about this in the past in these talks. Whenever you have a transition of power, when there's a vacuum of power, when you're transitioning from one epoch of time to another epoch of time, there's always violence associated with this. So we must understand that as the human rule of this earth ends and the divine rule and Yeshua's theocracy comes, it's going to be a violent time. And remember, the body of Messiah and Israel are inseparable. Yeshua said in Matthew 24, starting at verse 6, you will hear the noise of wars nearby and the news of wars far off. See to it that you don't become frightened. Such things must happen, but the end is yet to come. For peoples will fight each other. Nations will fight each other. And in the, in the Greek, this says ethnos. So we're talking about ethnic disruption, ethnic wars. This is what we're seeing now with racism, bigotry, and anti-Semitism. Nations will fight each other. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various parts of the world. All this is but the beginning of the birth pains. Odin in the Greek, which is pain, sorrow, travail, the pain of childbirth, birth pangs, intolerable anguish, in reference to the dire calamities preceding the advent or the return of Messiah. In fact, Yeshua gives us further warning regarding this stormy time, a storm of which we are already in, but this comes with a covenant promise. In Matthew 24, starting at verse 12, and many people's love will grow cold because of increased distance from Torah. That word, anomia, in the King James Version, it says law, but is actually talking about Torah, the condition of or without Torah. Nomia means unalterable. That means the Torah. The A before it in the Greek means without it. So people's love will grow cold because they're away from Torah. But whoever holds out, hupomineo, to have fortitude, to persevere under misfortunes and trials, to hold fast to one's trust in Yeshua, to endure, bear bravely and calmly. Whoever holds out till the end will be delivered. Sozo, which means to save, protect, to keep safe, sound, to be rescued from danger or destruction, to preserve one who's in danger of destruction, to deliver from the penalties of the Messianic judgment. Man, that's profound. See, no matter your thought process or belief regarding the Shemitah, troubles and anguish, in fact, are coming sooner or later. Will it be this year, five years, ten years? I don't know. But Yeshua confirms a covenant promise here that is given to us throughout the prophets. Zephaniah tells us about a place of safety for the righteous in the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Zephaniah 2, verses 1 through 3, it says, Gather together, gather yourselves, nation devoid of shame. Before the decree takes effect and the day comes, one passes like chaff. Before Adonai's fierce anger comes on you, before the day of Adonai's anger comes on you, seek Adonai, all of you humble in the land. You who exercise his justice, seek righteousness, seek humility. 
you might be hidden on the day of Adonai's anger. So we're told if we seek the Lord in humility, if we walk in justice and righteousness, if we forgive, if we don't slander, if we seek purity and righteousness, if we walk in humility with a broken and contrite heart, we might be hidden, protected, concealed on the great and terrible day of the Lord. The single most important critical thing one can do to get ready to prepare for the coming storm is to work on our relationship and standing with God. He makes covenant promises in the midst of his judgment for the righteous who will be established. Isaiah 54 verses 14 through 17. In righteousness you will be established. Tikkun ani in the Hebrew, which means to be established, to be stable, to be secure, to be enduring, to be fixed, to be securely determined, to be steadfast, far from oppression, with nothing to fear, not far from ruin, to make ready, prepare, provide, to be restored. You will be established, for it will not come near you. Verse 15, any alliance that forms against you will not be my doing. Whoever tries to form such an alliance will fall because of you. Verse 16, it is I who created the craftsman who blows on the coals and forges weapons suited for their purpose. I also created the destroyer to work havoc. Verse 17, no weapon made will prevail against you. In court, you will refute every accusation. The servants of Adonai inherit all this. The reward for their righteousness is from me, says Adonai. What a phenomenal promise of God. No matter what weapon, alliance, or accusation that is formed, made, stated, or issued against you will prosper or come to pass. This is the reward for righteousness, says Adonai. Those who know him, who walk in truth and righteousness before him, those who submit, obey, honor, and worship the king of kings. Listen, even Job, in the midst of his crisis, in the center of his maelstrom, in the center of his own personal storm, he has this epiphany, a realization that pulls him out of the storm. In Job 42, verse 5, he said, I had heard about you with my ears, but now my eyes see, ra'ah in Hebrew, to look at, to see, regard, learn, to observe, watch, to look upon, to find out, consider, to give attention to, to discern you. He said, I've heard about you, but now I see you. I know you. I discern you. There's a great difference between hearing about something and experiencing it yourself. I can only speak the word so far. Head knowledge is only knowledge. Adonai must become a matter of the heart. Your heart must become circumcised. He must be real in your life. His presence must manifest in you, and that can only be done by a righteous, pure walk with him. There has to be a realization of who God is. And this realization transitioned Job from hearing about God to knowing God, to observing him, learning, regarding, observing him. It was in this condition that God healed, restored, and set Job free from his own personal storm. Proverb reveals a profound truth regarding the humble heart, those who repent when God reproves, and the result for those who do not. In Proverbs 1, starting at verse 23, it says, Repent when I reprove, I will pour out my spirit to you, I will make my words known to you. Because you refused when I called, and no one paid attention when I put out my hand, but instead you neglected my counsel and would not accept my reproof, I, in turn, will laugh at your distress and mock when terror comes over you. Yes, when terror overtakes you like a storm and your disaster approaches like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble assail you, verse 28, then they will call me, but I won't answer. They will seek me earnestly, but they won't find me. Verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of Adonai. Verse 30, they refused my counsel and despised my reproof. 
verse 31, so they will bear the consequences of their own way and be overfilled with their own schemes. See, the key here is having God's presence with you, in you, in the midst of any storm, any crisis, which is something you must develop before the storm. The world is about to find out that God is real and that Yeshua is his son. And there's a difference here of having God with you versus shalom in the storm. God has given us two very profound examples of God's servants having shalom in the midst of a storm. Storms come in many different ways. Biblically, storms are metaphors for many different situations, for crisis, attacks, zeros, bad medical reports, bad relationships, strife, invasions, war, losing your job, home foreclosures, addictions, bad circumstances, ungodly laws, unjust rulers, rumors of wars, and on and on and on. I've heard the saying many times that if you have shalom in the midst of the storm, you're in God's will, which is not necessarily truth. The first example is Yeshua in a storm in Mark 4. Starting at verse 35, it says, That day when evening had come, Yeshua said to them, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So leaving the crowd behind, they took him just as he was in the boat, and there were other boats with them. Verse 37, A furious windstorm arose, and the waves broke over the boat, so that it was close to being swamped. Verse 38, But he, Yeshua, was in the stern, on a cushion, asleep. And they woke him and said to him, Rabbi, doesn't it matter to you that we're about to be killed? In verse 39, he awoke and rebuked epitimio, which means to show honor to, to rebuke, repuve, to censor severely, to admonish or charge sharply. He rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. The wind subsided and there was a dead calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Why you no trust even now? But they were terrified, and they asked each other, Who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him? In the midst of the storm that is about to sink the ship, Yeshua is sleeping. Yeshua is modeling supernatural trust, profound shalom to a crew. Now, listen, they had spent their lives on the water. They had experienced many storms in the past, and these sailors were terrified. In a panic, they awaken the sleeping Yeshua, who rebukes and speaks to the weather, while asking the Talmudim and crew, why are they afraid? Where's their trust? Yeshua knows that he is established in righteousness, as Isaiah 54 states, so that no weapon, article, weapon, vessel, covenant, or storm will stand or prosper against him. And I'm going to tell you a little secret. I've learned to do this when flying. We've all suffered turbulence in the aircraft. Listen, if you're not the pilot, it makes everybody a little nervous, especially if you're, if you're flying through storms or foul weather. And I've learned to pray, and I've actually done this, and it worked. And speak to the weather and say, you have a purpose. Storms have a purpose. They bring Lightning brings nitrogen to the soil. It brings rain to nourish the land and make the crops and trees grow. Listen, we've got to have storms. And God placed them there for the purpose of his creation. But we, too, are part of God's creation and I'm also doing what God has ordained me to do. So while flying, I speak to the storm to say, you do what you must do because God has ordered you to do it, but stop shaking this aircraft because I'm on Adonai's mission and I too must do what I need to do. And I've had it stop. I've had the turbulence stop. The aircraft immediately settle down. We have the same power and authority that Yeshua had. We got to remember this. If you're established in him, 
In this knowledge and covenant relationship, Yeshua is comfortable sleeping in the midst of the storm. In fact, he questions the resolve and trust of the crew. If they really knew who he was, why were they in such a panic and afraid? Maybe like Job, they'd heard of him. Maybe they had head knowledge. But Yeshua had to become a reality in their life. They knew of him, but they didn't know him. And now in the midst of the storm, they had a profound revelation and they now know who he is. You know, we have another person sleeping on a ship in the midst of a storm, but under a completely different set of circumstances. In Jonah 1, starting in verse 1, the word of Adonai came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, set out for the great city of Nineveh and proclaimed to it that their wickedness has come to my attention. But Jonah, Jonah, in order to get away from Adonai, prepared to escape to Tarshish, and he went down to Jaffa, found a ship headed for Tarshish, paid the fare, went aboard, intended to travel with him to Tarshish and get away from Adonai. He didn't want to do it. Jonah was convinced in his own mind that the people of Nineveh were getting exactly what they deserved, and he did not want to do what Adonai was commanding him to do. So he gets on this ship to Tarshish, and he wants to get away from God. Verse 4, however, Adonai let loose over the sea a violent wind which created such stormy conditions that the ship threatened to break to pieces. The sailors were frightened, and each cried out to his God. They threw the cargo overboard to make the ship easier for them to control. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down below into the hold where he lay fast asleep. Verse 6, the ship's captain found him and said to him, What do you mean by sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Maybe the God will remember us, and we won't die. Verse 7, then they said to each other, Come, let's draw lots to find out who's to blame for this calamity. They drew lots, and Jonah was singled out. Verse 8, they said to him, Tell us now, why has this calamity come upon us? What work do you do? Where are you from? What is your country? Which is your people? And he answered them in verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Adonai, the God of heaven, who made both the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, at this, the men grew very afraid and said to him, Why is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was trying to get away from Adonai since he had told them when he got on the ship. Listen, we're all story, familiar with the story of Jonah and, and tells the crew the storm is his fault because he's rebelling against what God commanded him to do and that they should throw him overboard to stop the storm in verse 12. And after trying to save the ship and Jonah to no avail, they finally throw Jonah overboard and immediately the storm ceased. Two storms two men of God, two polar situations and results. And what was the difference between Yeshua and Jonah? They're both calmly sleeping in Shalom in the midst of the storm. One was spared the storm. The other one became the victim of the storm. Yeshua was in complete Shalom and asleep because he was in God's will. He was established in his father in obedience and righteousness. Jonah was in Shalom outside of God's will. He knew what he was supposed to be doing, but refused God's commands and instructions. So the storm became a vehicle of judgment against him. The storm took him, and he had no command over the weather. He was then swallowed by the fish for three days or three nights, as Yeshua would be buried and dead for three days and three nights. When the storm comes, and listen, friends, it is coming. Either this year, next year, two years, five years, doesn't matter. The storm, the great and terrible day of the Lord is coming. Whether it's Shemitah and, and judgment for America's actions 
or again, the great and terrible day of the Lord. What will the storm mean for you? Where will you be in the coming storm? Jonah was fast asleep in Shalom during the storm, which was not a sign that he was in God's will. In fact, it was just the opposite. Don't think you are right with God because you have Shalom in the storm. When the storm comes, will you be established in Adonai and have authority over it, rebuking it so that it cannot touch you? Or will the storm be the event of your judgment where you're thrown into it and it consumes you? True lasting shalom in the storm is like the eye of a hurricane. Though the winds rage around it in a tempest of destruction, the eye of the storm contains shalom, sunshine, and calm seas. And the only way to be in the eye of the storm is to be established in Adonai, to be in covenant with him, to live in righteousness, holiness, and purity through the love and blood of Yeshua. Diligently seek after God and you will find authentic peace. Way back on my first submarine, and this is the hard part of being in the military, when you're in a naval vessel, when a hurricane comes, you leave your family, you leave your children, your spouse, and you take the ship to sea. Because ships in port during hurricanes are destroyed. They're battered against the pier. They're, they're run aground. We fare better at sea. So Hurricane Gloria was coming up the coast. This was a massive storm, which was supposed to hit our area here in Virginia. It didn't. It actually hit New England. But we put to sea. And everyone evacuated from this area. And so we were trying to find out, to come to Periscope Depth, to make communications, to see what was happening. And, and I got to share this with you. We came up, we were down very deep. We came up to 400 feet beneath the surface and we're taking 25 degree rolls on this submarine, USS Finback, because that weather was so severe. We went back down deep, waited another 12 hours. And when we come up, we actually came to periscope depth in the eye of that storm. The waters were completely calm. We could see sunshine. We couldn't raise any communications on the beach. We actually had to listen to a local FM radio channel to find out what the weather report was and to find out that the storm was heading north and our families were safe. But that's a firsthand example of what it's like to be in the eye of the storm that's being established in Adonai. In Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7, it says, Don't worry about anything. On the contrary, make your requests known to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Then God's shalom, surpassing all understanding, will keep fruio in, in the Greek, which means to guard, protect by military guard, to prevent hostile invasion, to protect by guarding. This shalom that surpasses all understanding will keep, right, protect your hearts and minds safe in union with the Messiah Yeshua. See, the question is, will you be like Jonah and run from God to seek shalom? Or will you be like Yeshua and run towards God to seek shalom within his will to be established in him? It's said of the righteous in Proverbs 18, verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous person runs into it and is saved. Strong is oz in the Hebrew, which means strength and force, security, majesty, praise, might, power, and strong. The name of Adonai is a strong, majestic, powerful tower, and the righteous run into it and are saved. See, we must live and walk in the presence and voice of God. And the storm that is coming, and Mishpocha, listen to me, it is coming. We will be able to sleep in perfect shalom after being established in Adonai, or will it be an event of judgment?
It's up to us. It's up to our walk and how we interact and engage with God. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. May you be established in the throne room of God's presence. May his hand of protection be upon you, and may you have God's perfect shalom in the storm as you are protected by the Most High God of Israel, covered by the blood of Yeshua, separated from the curse, and made whole. Blessings to you. Amen. Amen.